Hey, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. Fun Counter Guy, thanks for stopping by. Welcome to another edition of Ride Around, the podcast where we get the feel of a particular place and the characters that animate its stages. On this installment, we're back in Evansville, Indiana with my father. Now, back on episode 181, Dad had us all over the said city, but this time around, we're going to stick to a couple block radius on the west side, around 8th Street. Though there's not much... At the location now, we're going to talk about what used to be there, a business called Swanson Nunn, at which my dad was employed here and there over the years. Did you ever know Swanson or Nunn? Yes. Back when I started right out of high school, I graduated one day and started working here the next day. Literally. Literally. At that time, it was owned by, it had had been purchased by a businessman. They called him Slick. He was a businessman. He wore the business suit and everything. He didn't know anything about the industry, but he bought it. And Mr. Nunn used to every now and come and walk through. Of course, he was like in his 80s or 90s, really old and decrepit. But he would come and walk through the building just to see how things were, you know. But it wasn't his at that time. What did Swanson Nunn do? What was their industry? At one time, they were the one and only the leading electric motor repair facility. They did all the big, glamorous work. You mean they were the number one tops. I guess back in that generation, Mr. Swanson and Mr. Nunn, and uh, some of the old pictures I saw, I mean, they were second to none. No pun intended. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but like a lot of other businesses, I've noticed when the original owners get out, generally the next owners can be businessmen and investors, and things usually take a turn for the worse because they don't know the, they don't know anything about it. They don't know how to manage it. They don't know how to run it. They did. It's all about the bottom line. So at one time they had no competition and could have been top dog for years. But when that change took place. It just went downhill, 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 and eventually became the underdog of, uh, of that field. Other shops rose to their glory days, and all of a sudden, Swanson Nunn was like at the bottom of the pile. You know, They just didn't keep up with technology, and it's a shame. It's a shame because they were, you know, they were the one at one time. But When they hired you, how much did you know about electronics and winding motors and all that stuff? Just what I learned in high school. At that time, they had more vocational schools, and they even had them in high school. When we were sophomores, uh, we were given an opportunity to to enroll in the vocational program, which was the last two years in high school. For some reason, I took an interest in the electrical part and uh, did that, and I got the job at high school because of my training there. Mm-hmm. And as far as uh, you know, the school, they taught us about, you know, electricity and the and the basics and the theory and all that. And I think I did wind one uh, electric motor in high school, but it was all pretty. It was not really the way it really happens in real life. You know, it was it was classroom, textbook, 
lab learning. Right. So eventually, oh, the Vietnam War happened, and so you left the job, right, to go to in the service. Well, see, I graduated in '66 and got the job there. Vietnam was real hot, right? And of course, a lot of guys were coming home dead, and I tried to avoid that by uh, enlisting in the Navy. And I went to the Navy recruitment, and they tested me and accepted me, but they could only take so many at a certain time. And I was on the list to come in maybe six months later or something like that. But before that time came up, I was drafted. Do you still remember getting that letter? Oh, yeah. Well, you get a letter to go to uh, for a physical. At that time, you, they got on a big bus like 3 o'clock in the morning. And drove to Louisville, and uh, first time I overslept, I missed it. Oh, I mean, no. I thought the CIA was going to come after me or something. <laughs> I, you know, the government, you know, just over. I called, and man, I apologized, and they just laughed. They said, oh, it happens all the time. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so, next, next bus. I mean, it's early in the morning. But, right. So, I got drafted. So, you had to tell Swanson down you were leaving. Well, they went to bat for me, too. They tried to, uh, when they found I was going to be drafted, uh, they wrote the letter to the Selective Service, and uh, the Selective Service would give a waiver. a waiver or something, exemptions, I guess you'd call it, to certain fields, you know, if you were important to the war effort. Uh-huh. And uh, they wrote a nice letter. You know, I don't know why they did it. I was just a punk, you know, I just a low <laughs> man on the totem pole. But they wrote a letter and tried to get me uh, exempt because of the work there, you know, but it didn't. didn't do me good. <laughs> so years later, you you finish your service, you get married, you get a job in another town, Boonville, which that'll be another episode, uh, and then eventually you come back to Swanson Nun as an adult. Right. Well, uh, when I was in the service, even though when I came home on leave for a few weeks or something, Swanson Nun would always let me go back and work. Anytime I came home, I walked in and went back to work. And I did the same thing when I got released from the Army, went back to work for them, you know. But in time, I was not happy with the wages, and like all young kids, you know, you always think you're better than what you... Anyway, yeah, I got another job in uh, Boonville, and that's probably where I really learned most of what I learned there as a a floor worker, you know. But then, as time went on, you get unhappy again. And I uh, was watching the paper for an opportunity, and then I saw the one for um, a foreman. And I was having trouble with my legs and stuff, and having to stand all day at a machine, kind of bent over, was hard on your back, your legs and feet, standing on concrete. And I thought I needed to get something that would be a little less strenuous, so that's why I took the foreman job there at Swanson Nine. And they remembered back. you? Oh, Yes. As a matter of fact, the guy that owned the place at that time, they had gotten another owner by then. He was actually a, a licensed electrician and knew a little bit about the electrical and the contracting, but he wasn't too well-versed in the electric motor. And uh, the electric motor shop continued to decline, mm-hmm. even under his ownership. But uh, back when they were considering hiring me, and I, they, I had to go and see him. He says, now... David, I remember back when you were here before, you were a little rowdy. <laughs> really? Says, uh, well, yeah. He said, uh, 
Well, they were trying to get a union in back then, uh-huh. and I signed a card like everybody else did because they come around and said, hey, we can get more pay if you've signed this card. I uh-huh. did. So I was uh, labeled as being pro-union. Oh, uh, okay. Like a radical. So he said, I assume that, you know, you've matured since then and all that, you know. <laughs> I said, yeah, you won't have any problems there. So, you know, yeah. that's it. You just yeah. kind of like, you know, we, we know how you were in the past. Uh-huh. We don't want that anymore, you know, so... So let's get some of the stories. And you, you were given your own office. So there was one day that you said you were having some problems with maybe your bowels. <laughs> well, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't know how to get into this. I mean, it happens many times in your life. But, well, there's days you have maybe some gas. Yeah. And I'm you be- think you're in the clear and there's nobody within five miles. And so you don't, you don't test your muscles too well. <laughs> And you let her rip, you know. <laughs> and lo and behold, just no more than it gets out. Here comes somebody right in your space. Every time, you know, nobody around. You can't see anybody. Mm-hmm. No animal, no person, no anybody. And just as soon as a split second, they're right on top of you, you know. What do you do? <laughs> but yeah, one time uh, I was sitting in my office, and I guess it was around lunchtime. One of the guys from upstairs came in just to talk and... And he starts sniffing. He says, well, you got some fried chicken in here, Dave? I said, and I said, no. I was very sincere, you know, very somber, I should say, you know. No, I don't have fried. Oh, come on, Dave. You got some fried. He kept looking around, looking around on the shelves and, and sniffing. He says, you know, I said, no, no, I don't have any fried chicken, Bill. I've already eaten lunch or something. Well, that's okay. I mean, I, I mean, if you got some fried chicken, that's okay. But I just thought you had some in here. And he kept sniffing, sniffing, sniffing. <laughs> And he wouldn't let it die. And I was trying to be neutral and not laugh or embarrass him or anything. Finally, I told him, I said, Bill, I'll t- I had gas. <laughs> I said, are you sure? Said, it smells like fried chicken. And, you know, I expected the guy to gag and go wash his mouth out or blow his nose or something because he'd sniffed all my gas, you know. But he didn't. Didn't seem to bother him at all. He said, well, it's okay. I just like to <laughs> Most people went outside and threw up or something, but not, not Bill. Uh. The wind is calm. The wind is love. And the wind is my song to you. Later on, I worked there as a t- teenager, and so I remember some of these characters that you're going to talk about. One guy, we'll call him Clem, he was kind of an older guy, he had a big nose that kind of drooped, and uh, everyone kind of gave him a hard time, and he kind of walked around like a hurt puppy, if I remember correctly. He was not there when I came there out of high school, but I heard a lot about him. He would had been there for years, been like a... You know, he was kind of one of these guys that kind of ruled the roost. I mean, he had a personality and very boisterous and didn't mind sharing his opinion with everybody. So I mean, he's bigger than life. Well, it wasn't very few, many months after I started working there, he came back. He went off to another motor shop for a while, tried to spread his wings like, you know, other people did, but he didn't like it and came back. He probably 
I don't want to say he took me under his wing because I was under somebody else, but he did, you know, he did try to help me out. And he was, uh, I only went to the fourth grade and I don't know how to describe him. Just showed us ignorance every day, you know. But yeah, he did have a very large nose and they, he smoked cigarettes all the time. They claimed that his nose was his vent. <laughs> and they said, they claimed that this, the smoke from the cigarette just went out of his nose, you know, because right. it's so big, but... Well, I remember there was a someone had drawn a caricature of him up on the wall, and it was up there for years. And I remember saying to you one day, I said, "Is that Clem?" And you're like, "Yeah." And I was like, "He walks around under every day. He walks past it. He's got to know it's him." You know, like, yeah, yeah. He's got to live with it. But you know where that that symbol came from? That's the Kilroy signature. Oh, uh, Kilroy. Do you know anything about the Kilroy? Kilroy was here. Or, yeah. Yeah, yeah, vaguely. You know, that's another story, but it was uh, something during the war, a guy identifying his parts. His name was Kilroy, and then somehow this thing came up. Kilroy was here. He was like a inspe- flasher? He was an inspector, I think. Oh. No, there wasn't any crime associated with it. Oh, okay. okay. But it just, it just took on a life of its own. Kilroy was here. Oh, okay. You saw it everywhere after a while. But right. That was his symbol he had there. I didn't know it at the time, but... Mm. Well, you, but. eventually they had to let him go, right? Yes, that was sad. Um, he was... The main guy in what they called single-phase motors, that's motors that are more residential, that you would see on your fans and your refrigerators and your air conditioners. He knew his thing. He had been around enough and made enough mistakes. He, he knew that position pretty well. But uh, he was a thief, just stole every day from the place. He was stealing parts and taking them home and had his own repair shop. People would come in there and... People like air conditioning people, they'd had a job broke down. They'd bring a motor in and have him look at it. And he says, well, you just bring it out the house tonight and I'll take care of it. You know, he was uh, wow. very dishonest. And every day his lunchbox was, they made a joke. He'd come in swinging his lunchbox and he went out, it was dragging the ground, you know. <laughs> and it was true. It was true. So how long did they know he was stealing before they did something about it? They knew it for years. I don't know how long, but they used it against... When they were trying to form a union, they were scared of the guys that were trying to form a union. They said, if you continue on with this union business, we're going to send Clem to jail for all the stuff he stole. Wow. And, of course, nobody wanted their co-worker to go to jail, and that's how they suppressed union activity. Hmm. So he was a pawn in their game <laughs> in the end. But he did make the money. Uh-huh. I don't know how much. It might have been a draw, but... They just, they tolerated him for years. But his eyes got so bad, and I guess his thinking, and as he got older, and he was making just big mistakes, just putting the wrong part in jobs that didn't even fit. It was causing a lot of problems. Guys would bring their pump in to be worked on. He'd put a part in that didn't even fit. And, of course, they'd take it and put it out, and it would just leak like a sieve. And he knew, he had to know when he put those parts in, they weren't going to work. Why he did it, we never could figure out. Mm. And uh, finally, they had to let him go. And that, that was kind of a bad day for me because when I came in the place, you know, he was kind of took me under his wing and taught me some things. You know, he was my superior, so to speak. And then ended up, when I came back as a supervisor, I had to be part of his termination. Huh. And it was, it was bad, you know, but... But, you know, it had to happen. It was overdue. I got it one piece at a time, and it didn't cost me a dime. You'll know it's me when I come through your town. 
there was another fellow there at Swanson Nun. He was there when I came back the second time, and he had both arms uh, missing. One was at the elbow, and one was at the shoulder. He was doing customer service. That's about all he could do at that time. He could uh, do the paperwork and wait on customers and things like that. But the story I learned is that uh, earlier he was a, a pretty good mechanic, uh, technician there at the place, but he was uh, one of these people who just had a need for speed, so to speak, just had to be on the dangerous side of life, and he rode motorcycles, and uh, he would just get drunk and just scream all over the place, you know, just always in uh, some dangerous situation or exciting situation, whatever, but at one time he had an accident and hit a guy wire. Explain to folks what that is. Well, uh, on a telephone pole or a utility pole, every now and then, if the the lines are putting a lot of stress on the poles to want to bend a certain direction, they'll put a guy wire down to the ground to help keep the pole erect. They'll do the same thing on fences. On the corner of a fence, mm-hmm. they'll have a guy wire to, to remove the stress from it. So it's basically a cable. Yeah, it's a cable, yeah. Uh, most of them nowadays have a plastic or a fiberglass cover over them usually yellow, and you can see him. But anyway, he hit one of those, and it severed both his arms. He, uh, of course, ended up blaming the utility company. I understand he got a big lawsuit out of it. I don't know what all. But the point was, even through all that, losing both his arms, and I don't know how the guy lived. You know, you have to wonder how they bathe themselves, how they can even go to the restroom, all these complications in life. He still it did not take that... <laughs> speed demon out of him after his accident he recovered he when i started working there he was driving a pickup truck and had one of those swivel knobs on his steering wheel so he could drive it with his hook mm-hmm. and every evening uh, when uh, it's time to go home he'd take off down the street just squeal on his tires as fast as he could go you know just <laughs> i'm still alive <laughs> You would think, haven't you learned your lesson? Don't you want to slow down and live a little longer? But uh, just another one of those cases where God just has to, I guess it's a demon of some sort. It's a need they have, and they do it. You said that eventually you let him go? Yeah, it was a sad thing. Uh, as I mentioned, at one time he was a good technician, I understood, and was you know did well. And then after the accident, of course, he couldn't handle tools anymore, so they... They let him keep his job, but he let him wait on customers. And he could pretty much handle paperwork, get the, a ticket, uh, write up a sales ticket. Uh, I don't know exactly what he did, but uh, things were so tight money-wise, and the place was having a hard time making a profit. They finally had to terminate him because, you know, really he was not, he, he really couldn't contribute anything in that particular job. Yeah, it was it was sad they had to let him go, but mm-hmm. sometimes you do something for the big picture, you know, to save, save everybody else's job, you know. All right. Did you work on his arm? I don't think I ever did, but uh, he had one guy there that was, um, apparently they were friends before the accident and after and all that, but uh, there was always some kind of adjustment needed, and every now and then, you know, they'd have his arm down there on the counter and a couple of screwdrivers and needle-nose pliers and... <laughs> adjusting something on it uh-huh. probably the way he used them they probably got a lot of wear on them you know i don't know but yeah. uh he did have a friend there kind of washed out and took care of him 
there, and it was nice that he did that. But so Swanson Nunn had uh, an array of characters that worked for y'all, and it seemed to me that you hired a few folks that were maybe special needs. And there was one guy in particular, his name was Perry, we'll say. But first of all, what did they hire him to do? Well, first of all, I had nothing to do with hiring these people. They, they were there before you got there? They were there, or somebody else hired them while I was around, but I had uh, I had nothing to do with it. But it was a, an odd mix of people. Perry, I don't know how he got the job. I don't know if they had an ad in the paper. I was young myself. That was my first time there. But they needed somebody to clean parts. So Perry got the job. His background was his dad had been dead a long time. He lived in the projects, the white projects, and his mother was very old. So you know kind of how those people socially, how they are when they're raised by a single elderly person. And his best friend was was mentally retarded. Mm -hmm. There was anything wrong with him. He just, his environment really made him an odd guy. Like for, he was out of high school and we'd come back from Christmas vacation. Hey, what'd you, how do you, what'd you get for Christmas? Oh, I got a G.I. Joe doll. You know, he was still very simple yeah. for some reason. Uh, and so he was a real social misfit. And But for some reason they kept him on for, he was there until he went bankrupt. They just, didn't get rid of people unless they killed you really because <laughs> you can tell totally... unless you told them blind uh, so he was very had been very sheltered very uh simple was he good at his job no <laughs> oh i was hoping that maybe he had no, a real gift they haul... i felt sorry for the guy they hollered and screamed at him because he was a parts washer and he'd get the parts mixed up and they oh. couldn't find the parts put it back together how he did that i don't know but you know, one of the funny stories was about him. Uh, of course, he had, he was out of high school, got his first job. He hadn't had a car. He'd always been under his, I don't know if they had any transportation. Probably rode the bus. He lived in the projects. But he decided he's going to get him a car. And I don't know, I think one of the guys maybe helped him go find a car. So uh, he was all proud. And then he couldn't pass a driving test. And I don't know how many times he had to take it. And every time he'd go, we'd all be rooting for him. And come back the next day, Perry, did you pass? No, I didn't pass, you know. Oh, man. <laughs> but he finally got it together and was driving his car to work. And some one day, one of the guys said, uh, Perry, have you checked oil in your car lately? No, I didn't know I needed to, you know. Mm. Well, you go out there at lunch, and you get you a quart of oil, and at lunchtime, you know, you'll have time to do it. it says, there's a little... You think it took him out there and showed him, he says, right there, that little rod you put, that's where you check the oil. And if it's low, you got to put some oil in it. Uh, oh, no. So uh, <laughs> the day comes, he says, i got a couple quarts of oil. He says, I'm going to go out there and put add some oil during lunch. And the guy says, okay. So after lunch, he didn't come back in for the longest time. Finally, went and checked on him, and he was out in the car, out there in the parking lot, trying to put oil in the dipstick hole. <laughs> I mean, no one told him any different. He didn't know. All he knew, that's where he was supposed to check it. Yeah. And, of course, they rolled him like crazy. Uh, just, poor, guy. poor guy. Poor guy. You know, he didn't know. But uh, At one time, none of the rest of us knew. But, right. you know, 
at that age to be so simple. Yeah. Well, but, I also remember his mom kind of controlled him. Yes. Yes. She didn't want him dating anybody. I mean, it, it, he was just a mess mm-hmm. because of his environment. It's a shame, you know. Right. But. But. He had a secret girlfriend. He didn't want his mother to know about. And he wanted to marry her as far as that goes. And, uh, but he didn't know how to tell his mother about it. I don't know how he ever pulled it off, but eventually it come. I thought she died. Oh, he, she may have. Right. Well, she did eventually. He had an aunt, his uh, mom's sister, who was with it. You know, she was in the real world, and she did help come to helped him out. And I think she helped enable him to start dating and mm-hmm. and get married. I think, yeah. Then on Saturdays, he would put on his work clothes and make his lunch and tell his mom he was going to work. He did do that and be dating his girl. That's a shame that you know what something is very natural. A guy should start taking interest in girls and dating, and he had to hide it from his mom. Right. I guess she wanted to keep him there. If. She- he married on who's going to take care of her, right? right. Or she'd be alone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so eventually she dies and then, so now he can get married. Uh-huh. So let's, let's talk about that. Who was the best man at the wedding? <laughs> he asked me to. Yeah. I was probably his only friend he had besides his childhood friend. You know, somehow I... Well, you were nice to people. Yeah, I, I tried to be nice even though he was needy, you know. And so uh, he asked me to be his best man. And so, I, you know, I tried to do the best I could, you know, be his best man, you know. I'll skip to the end a little bit, but his, his aunt was kind of in charge and all that. So I was asked to be the best man, so I did that, got my tux and everything. And Mom and I went to the wedding, and after the reception is over, his aunt came up to me, and she says, now the best man is supposed to take care of p- taking down these tables and taking all them back to the funeral home. Is that traditional? <laughs> I didn't know. But what can I say, you right. know? Wow. So we went home, and we had a station wagon. I was driving to work and switched cars and switched clothes and come back and hauled tables to the funeral home. Wow. Mom was pretty upset about that. And I never heard of a best man hauling tables <laughs> to the funeral home. But, you know, they were in a predicament. They had to get them out of the church, and the nursing home, uh, the funeral home wanted them back. But, uh-huh. but as far as the, uh, the wedding... It started off, he asked me to take pictures also, and because he you know, couldn't afford a photographer. So I went with my camera and started taking pictures. Well, there was this guy running all over the place, just click, 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 all over the platform. And He was taking and pictures, taking too. Taking pictures, you know, before the, even the wedding even started. And I asked him, uh, found out it was his brother-in-law, who it was, his wife's sister's. Uh, husband and he was a oh he was a he was a nut and a half well we should back up the bride herself was not all right right perry's wife was a little slow or simple yes kind of probably the same thing that he was you know just probably led a very sheltered rural life i don't know where where she she she's from illinois i think but she had more whiskers than i did (laughs) 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 so uh, this guy's taking pictures. Yeah, and uh, kind of before the wedding, getting, you know, they're milling around taking pictures, and he just kept click, 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 and I and he never had a flash, and he never changed the film. And I finally asked him, I said, the, What kind of film you got in there? So you don't, it must be high speed because you don't have, use a flash. He says, Oh, it's infrared film. <laughs> and of course, I'm thinking, you know, I don't know much, much about infrared, but I thought it was. 
just took pictures of heat, you know, and it was. I was right. And I thought, I don't know how that's going to work. But, you know, he just, and I thought, well, he must know something that I don't know. But then I couldn't figure out how the roll was so endless. I mean, he clicked, clicked, clicked. Well, come to find out, he didn't even have his film and camera at all. He was, he, was a, he was just a liar. He could not tell the truth. He was a bragging guy. He had done everything. He had been everywhere. Uh, one of those kind of guys, uh-huh. unfortunately. But this guy, his wife, the bride's sister, was in the wedding also as a bridesmaid, I suppose. And they were standing in the, the reception line, you know, where people go and shake hands. And, of course, all the attention was directed towards the bride and groom. But he could not stand it. He had to be the center of attention all the time. His wife wasn't getting enough attention in the line. He finally faked this thing that his wife had went into labor. At the wedding. At the wedding. In the church. And I don't know how to go into this and not be just, gross. Just tell it. But he he had his wife on the pew giving her an examination <laughs> because she was going into labor. <laughs> and it just killed. The, it was a buzzkill. You know, the whole thing stopped. And everybody, the groom, Perry, and everybody's running around trying to find wet rags. You know, get... Uh. It's what you always do when somebody's going to labor. You get a bunch of wet towels or what it is. Hot water. water hot water. Well, it. So they're running around, scurrying around. You know, of course, it's hard to do at a wedding to try to find. Everybody's trying to tell me this lady's wage. She's going to labor, blah, blah, blah. Just ruined the whole, this is the reception after the wedding was over. Just ruined it for everybody. Of course, everybody's, you know how it is when somebody have, they called an ambulance and everything and left, you know. Well, that just put a whole cold rag on the whole wedding reception you know just didn't know if she's sick or what or what kind of find out she was never even pregnant because you guys went to the hospital to find we went her? to the hospital to check on her of course i was the best man i had the car with the dragging the cans behind i said let's go by the hospital check on your sister-in-law and so he goes in i didn't go and come back out and he says well i don't know the doctor says she's not even pregnant <laughs> and the husband kept saying well he knew she was oh man so, I mean, it's just one of those things in life you think, did that really happen? <laughs> that didn't happen. You tell something I had, nobody believes you that that's happened. But he, that's what, he had his wife, like on an examine table on the back pew of that church. Like with the stirrups, more or less? Well, I don't, didn't get that close. <laughs> but he was telling everybody that she was going into labor and, you know, call the ambulance. So that was that. I, Carried the table to the funeral home, and that was it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember Mom telling that that Perry was so proud of his new wife that, that he wanted you to drive them around, with, like you said, with the cans dragging behind the car, and he was waving at everybody, and you and Mom were in the car with him, but Mom was so embarrassed. <laughs> I don't remember that part, but she says it happened. It did, but we did. I tried to, to be the best man, like... You know, he's a very needy guy, very sheltered, didn't have any social life. So, you know, I tried to just make his day as special as I could. Uh-huh. I didn't know it was going to be as special as it was, but, I mean, it was real special. <laughs> well, later on, they're enjoying married life, right? Yeah, the guys would egg him on because he was, he was one of those people that didn't realize he was being made fun of. Mm-hmm. And they would get him going to get him to tell him things. They got him to believe in he was a good dancer, and they gave him up on the, a table and let him give him some spoons and act like the Casanets, and he'd 
jig around with like Mexican hat dance and they were making fun of him but uh, this is at work this is at work oh, man. you know he wanted to make like he was you know one of the guys you know and his love life was really on fire you know <laughs> and he would drop hints and of course the guys were egging him on and pulling stuff out of him he shouldn't have said but he'd talk about their amorous moments and we had a uh, Christmas thing coming up where people would pitch in and bring in snacks well, like the day before the Christmas holiday just have snacks sitting out and people would you know graze all day long and everybody's <laughs> supposed to bring in <laughs> supposed to bring in something well uh, he, he said he'd bring in the cheese ball and uh, so he did he brought in a cheese ball and put it in with the table and everything and late, about halfway through the day we got that guys got to asking him about the cheese ball and teasing him and everything he says yeah well, we were naked in the kitchen, and I had my Santa Claus hat on, and she had her Santa Claus hat on, and we made that cheese ball. <laughs> Did they chase each other around ho, the house? Ho, 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 and all this, you know, kept up. He, I don't know how he embellished the story, but he, he let us know. And, of course, the guys pulled it out of him that him and his wife were running around nude with the Santa Claus hats making the cheese ball for Christmas. <laughs> well... <laughs> We found this out about midday, but we didn't tell anybody except the ones in the office that knew about it. And the rest of the guys, we stopped eating cheese ball. <laughs> but we didn't tell anybody else. And when they found out later on that we knew and didn't say anything, they were furious that we didn't warn them about the cheese ball. <laughs> it was gone by then, you know. I don't think one guy ever forgave me for that. <laughs> You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> Come out here, mama, ain't nobody here but me. I'm drunk and disorderly, I don't care. If you want it, you can pull off your underwear. Come out here now, there ain't nobody here but me. So I mentioned that you had got me a job there when I was a teenager, and of course it was all grunt work. Part of it, my job was to pick up all these gym, mostly gym bottles that was on a lot that you guys had the trailers parked on. And the reason why there were so many gym bottles was, well, a couple, probably a couple reasons. One, there was the housing projects was right across the road. And there was two homeless guys that lived under the trailers. The, you know, that had gone on for years and years and years. That it was like a, a whole square block is what it was, I right. guess. And there was more broken glass and blades of grass. It had just, it was a piece of land that the Harley got used. And yeah, they parked some trailers there for storage and the guys took up home there. But it, it you know, it was just years and years and years of winos. It was just a wino block. It was thousands of bottles. I'm not even it exaggerating. Just, it's, yeah, it, I don't know how it went, how it went on so long, but it was that part of town. And it was just a place where they stored their semi-trailers and uh they didn't bother to harass the people that were living there you know i guess well, they had some kind of sympathy for them and yeah well even teenagers would sometimes i know there were some big trees and they would come park their cars and play their loud music and drink and then just toss the bottles and i, I was getting <laughs> irritated because i've been trying to it took me three or four months to clean all this up and they're adding to it but we'll talk about the one guy that he would get real drunk and uh start talking to himself and Yelling. There was, during my time period, there was a, one or two guys that stayed there a lot, but one guy 
sat out in one of these metal uh, lawn chairs beside one of the trailers, and he had a brown paper bag with something in it, a bottle in it. And my observation, what all I ever saw him do was lay there and kind of sleep, slumped over in his chair. And when he'd come to, he'd talk to himself a little bit, take another drink, and then he'd pass out again. And just did that continuously all day long, day after day. I don't know how the guy stayed alive, but that's that was his life, you know. I guess he was a I remember homeless. his face was bloated. Was it? It was exaggerated, I think, because he was yeah. such a, I, I guess that would indicate liver problems or something. Well, one day... Was it him that came in to find you? He actually came in the shop, which was pretty rare. I don't know which one it was, but there was a couple of homeless people, maybe two or three, I'm not sure, living under those trailers and cardboard boxes. Mm-hmm. One of them came in like before we'd even opened up and said, hey, uh, my buddy's uh, dead out here under the trailer. <laughs> it's starting to stink. And uh, nobody believed him at first, and then... So I didn't go out there. My supervisor went out with him and said, well, I'll go check on it. And uh, he told me later that, you know, he went out and looked, and the guy said, where is he? He said, well, he's back in, the back in there. And he looked around and says, I don't see anybody. He said, yeah, he's back there. He's dead, you know. Are you sure he's dead? Yeah, he's dead. You know, and he stinks. And I think my foreman said he could smell him himself, you know. Ugh. But he should have been well-preserved with all that alcohol. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Now, I don't know the whole story, but he called the people and they come and got him. You right. Know? But it was just another homeless person that passed on, probably never, probably didn't have a funeral, nothing come up in the paper, you know. I don't know if he had any family that recognized him or dealt with him or what. I don't, you know, I don't know. It's yeah. just another statistic is about what it was sad, you know, your life come down to where no connection with anybody, just the bottles. I don't know where they got the money for the bottles. Apparently, they're on Social Security or something. I right. don't know. Is, you know, I'm a teenager, and I'm, we never saw that stuff really in Boonville. Well, and, nowhere. Nowhere would you go into work one day and somebody's found a dead person under a trailer, you know, a block away. <laughs> right. It's on your property that you've been cleaning, uh, in your true. case, you know. And, uh, you you know, you just you never think about that thing happening. And it did, you know. Just, well, I don't remember if you said this or not, but it was, I think, when I had talked about I don't think I ever complained about the job too much, except when those guys would yell at me and curse and stuff. And it was a little scary because I didn't know what they were going to do. You told me they were harmless, but uh, I think it was another one of those moments where you said, well, you know, go to college. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've tried to think about back then. I can't remember how that all happened, that they needed somebody to clean or, or how your name even come up. I don't know. Uh, were they looking to use the lot for something else eventually? I think they were just embarrassed how it was filthy. You know how it was. Right. The, well, the grass was overgrown on the sidewalks, and I mean, it was a big job. I mm-hmm. mean, everybody was really remarkable what you did. With really? It. Well, yeah. I mean, the place was it. <laughs> I, I mean, everything was overgrown and filth, and mm-hmm. but you know they were glad with the results because the place never looked so good. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't mind it because one, uh, you were know, getting paid, but two, I'm by myself my own boss in a way every once in a you come check on me make sure the homeless guys hadn't done something to me but uh, also I listened to headphones I just listened to music the entire time I was in heaven really stay away from me everybody cause I'm in my scene There at Swanson, and um, when I started working there, there was uh, a, a guy already working there. He was about my age, maybe one year 
older. And uh, he was one of these, like, the best-looking guy around. And he had the best-looking girlfriend. I remember his little girl he married was the girl in high school, was up on the pedestal. Everybody else, you know, couldn't touch her. She was every guy's dream. Everybody knew her name, knew she was, and just known to be the queen of girls, you know, the best-looking and all that. Well, he married. He he was married to her. So he, by all the outward appearance, he had everything going for him. But he was a little wild and crazy. He liked to do things fast and dangerous. And somewhere before I started working there, he had had a a bad motorcycle accident. And during that time period, he had to use a lot of pain pills, and he never got off of them. So when I came to work there, he was still on these pain pills and. That was back when there wasn't much said about people using drugs, you know. It, just, it was known that he was still had a lot of pain or something. But he, he had glassy eyes that, you know, I didn't know at the time, but realized later on that, you know, he was taking pain pills a lot. But he still just had this wild nature in him. Did it affect his job at all? <laughs> he, he did good work. Mm-hmm. We worked together back in a little off-the-beaten-path department, and... Uh, there was nothing wrong with his work. He was good, and but he manipulated the system. But every now and then, uh, like I said, we were back in this old kind of dilapidated, abandoned big room, and there's a bunch of just equipment uh, stored around there, and one of them was like a big tank or something. And every now and then he says, Dave, I'm feeling bad, so I'm going to go over here and rest a little bit, so keep an eye out for me and let me know when it's time to go home or whatever. Really? And I didn't know for sure what he was doing. I just knew he went somewhere. Uh-huh. One day I was hunting for a part or something. I come across this tank, and there he was, curled up like a little puppy dog down there. And inside the tank? Inside this tank. He had, I guess, got some cardboard or some shredded paper or something. And uh, probably was drug-related. I don't know then. But uh, anyway, he still, from, you know, he had this reputation of being just kind of a wild and crazy. Very likable. You couldn't, couldn't dislike the guy. He had a good smile and good personality, but he was just always in the fast lane. And, at one time, he got this fascination with uh, fireworks, with gunpowder and whatnot, and he got it in his mind that he was going to make fireworks or uh, cherry bombs or firecrackers or something. And he was making them back in this area where he worked. I, he may have been doing it on his off hours. I don't know. But I just remember going back there one time, and there's this big, long clothesline and homemade cherry bombs <laughs> hanging up, letting them dry or something. I don't know what he had done with them, but... He'd gotten into gunpowder. One week, it was a holiday weekend. He's always talking about, you know, these things he was experimenting with, making things. He liked to make a lot of noise, a lot of booms and stuff. And one holiday weekend, he was doing his gunpowder thing, and uh, he had a pipe, a metal pipe that he had capped off, and he would somehow, he explained it. I never saw it. He'd put gunpowder in there, and then he'd put something else down there, and then ignite it and shoot it off. You so know, and not unlike a musket, where you would pack it down. He and, may have. I don't right. know exactly what he. I don't know if he had a wad or, but he had gunpowder and something else, some mm-hmm. kind of projectile to to shoot somewhere, uh, just for the sensation of it. You know, I don't know if he was did several successions of shooting gravel out of this pipe or he just decided to try gravel but the accident that got him was gravel he had put gunpowder and gravel down this pipe and somehow they became wedged before they 
uh, made it all the way out of the pipe and it blocked it. And so this, he was holding this pipe and the pipe peeled out like a banana in his hand where he was holding it mm. and really did a lot of damage to his, his hands. And they patched him up pretty good, but he lost his little finger on one hand. And they did a pretty good job of, uh, rather than just leaving a stub where the finger uh, became unattached, they actually tapered it off where his hand looked pretty normal. But if you notice, there was just only three fingers and a thumb. It didn't, it wasn't like a stub or a offset there. And he pretty much recovered from that, you know. But he still, he had a reputation for running around with the babysitters after they had used the babysitter and he would take them home and fool around with them. I don't know if she knew what was going on or not, but we couldn't understand. Here's this guy, the best looking guy, you know, around kind of, had the best number one girl that all the other guys dreamed about and he still wasn't happy, you know. Mm -hmm. But there was one story where he would, uh, I don't know how he got his babysitter out for long periods of time but they'd find some little rural town down in kentucky somewhere and they'd stop at the edge of town and just to shock the people he'd have his girlfriend on the back of the motorcycle take her blouse off and they'd go screaming through town you know just (laughs) (laughs) just to see the old people's reactions you know (laughs) crazy things like that but he was had always had a fast car he always had a camaro always zipping down the road and uh, one time he was taking a, a babysitter home, and I don't think he was going any direction he should have been going, but uh, he topped the hill on the wrong side of the road and hit another car uh, head on. And he and, was speeding, probably. Oh, yeah, he was speeding, and uh, from what I learned, it broke his neck and he immediately died. And the girlfriend was, I guess, close to death, but then. Some people happened to come along that she was actually a nurse and supposedly was credited for saving the girl's life, you know. Some folks you worked with. Right. Eventually, yeah, that nurse and her husband, I ended up being a co-worker at another job. And so one day we got to comparing stories about this, that, and the other and couldn't find out they were the first people on the accident. But it was just one of those things you think that by outward appearance, this guy had everything, always dressed nice, always looked nice, had the best-looking wife and kids that were looked like they come out of a magazine, you know, mm-hmm. but just he had the wild side of him and ended up being the death of him. It was a crying shame, you know. I don't know if this is related, but I remember in some, one of those sociology or psychology classes I had to take, they were measuring the electrical activity of the brain. You know, you can visually see it. The people that love the thrills, like roller coaster rides and driving fast and all that they had low electricity running through their brain, like low levels of it, and the people that t- tended to be happy sitting in a corner of a book or, you know, kind of dull, they have all this electricity going through their brain, and so it seems like there was some compensation going on with a lot of the thrill seekers. I don't know what it is. There, there seems to be some people that they need to, they have a need, or they are needy to where they have to prove themselves to other people they have to do something to to validate themselves and then there's other people that you know they're perfectly comfortable in their own skin so to speak they don't have to do anything they don't have to prove anything or they don't have to brag they just they're okay with themselves i, I don't know mm-hmm. how that comes to be no squares ever tag along
okay, so we should back up. You worked at Swanson Dunn when you were in high school. Eventually, you go to work for a place called Muller in Boonville. And then you go back to Swanson Dunn as an adult, as a foreman. And then you go back to Muller yet again. Right. Well, just a philosophy here. I think when you're hired in, like I was hired in at Swanson Dunn out of high school, I think you can only, a lot of places, you can only uh, be promoted so so far because you came in as a, a high school student without any experience. It's hard for you to advance yourself much beyond that. So I felt like I had gone all I could there at Swanson Nunn the first time as a laborer. Then I was able to get a job at Moeller, and they treated him with me with a lot more respect. They accepted me as a, as I was I had become. That's just my take on it. And, you know, made a lot more money and had more responsibility and was treated better. But eventually that job got to where I could only go so far. You know, I was, there wasn't any more promotion to be had because in their mind I was what I was. So then so to it, get another promotion, I went back to Swanson then. They accepted me as a guy with a lot of experience, whereas the place I was, even though I had a lot of experience, it, was, it wasn't accepted as much as somebody else. Like, oh, he's coming with a lot of experience to bring him. When you left Muller, <clears throat> you weren't a foreman. No. I was at the top of the game as a working supervisor, I guess you would call it. But there just wasn't anything else for me to go, and I didn't see anything else in the future, you know, nobody retiring or anything. So, and because of my health, you know, I got the job here. But I kind of made myself a go. I didn't like the job from the very get-go. That I was going to stick it out for five years. I just didn't think people ought to be jumping around from job to job. All right. And I decided I was going to stick it out for five years. I was qualified. They, they wanted somebody to get it out of the dark ages. Their testing methods and their... This is Swanson Nunn. Swanson Nunn. They realized that they were in the dark and, you know, they just... They hadn't uh, kept themselves up with the times, and they were having trouble with quality mostly because they weren't even testing things right. They just had fallen behind. Nobody was there with any kind of experience. So I came there for that reason and was able to do that fine and did a lot of things. But my supervisor was so hard on me that I don't know what his problem was, but I got to where every morning... All the way in, I uh, traveled from Boonville to there. I kept trying to psych myself out and praying, I'm going to have a positive attitude. I'm not going to let him get me down. This is going to be a different day. And no more I walk in the door and he'd shoot me down. Every day. Just a grumpy old man, you know, just criticized. And I didn't have the best of memory, you know. And, of course, I make mistakes. I was more mechanically inclined than I was paperwork inclined. He treated everybody that way, just rode them hard. And it, it really became about all I could take. But I was determined to stick it out. And I'd had several offers from Moeller to go back, but it wasn't the timing wasn't right. The reasons weren't right. And uh, about four and a half years, then they had an, an opportunity to be a supervisor. And then I went back. I vowed then... That no matter how bad, because I knew in time it would be a job again and I'd be unhappy again. But I vowed at that time, don't ever forget how miserable you were at the other place. <laughs> don't ever forget. Always look on the bright side and don't. Because I know it seems like every job you have, after a while, you just get 
you're tired of it, you're ready to move on, you don't think this is right, that's right. But that last time, I decided, this is it, buddy. I know how how much worse it could be. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't realize it was that bad. Well, it was probably me. I probably was thin-skinned. It made me so nervous, I, you know, I did worse, you know. It was a lot of paperwork and, and accounts and things that, you know, I, I, well, it didn't come natural to me. I didn't know any of these people down here, you know, or their paperwork system. I'd never done that. I think if they'd been a little more pleasant and tried to explain things a little better, things would have went a whole lot better. It wasn't that way. It was very dilatory. Just. So how'd they take it when you resigned? I think they were surprised. But uh, I had enough sense to know that you need to be packed up when you turn in your notice. Because most places, if you go to a competitor, they're going to tell you to go on and go. They don't want you, if you're going to a competitor, that's the way it is in any industry. They don't want you hanging around because your heart's someplace else and you're probably going, you could cheat them or whatever, you know. If you go to something that's completely out of a different type of job, a lot of times they'll let you stay your two weeks, you know. And But I knew, so... When I had it all worked out, you know, I'd started moving things out. And I think the day at night before, I had my office cleaned out, you know. Before the day was over, they said, you can go ahead and go. It wasn't any animosity or anything. Mm-hmm. You know, just, they weren't mad. They were, I think they were really shocked. Uh, but it was time for me to go. You know, I had an opportunity and that was that. Was there any animosity between the two buildings? Because one building was the, the workshop of all the the laborers and the grunts and the, you know, the dirty <clears throat> machinery. And then you had the office building, which I remember having to go to the office building on occasion and you could tell that I wasn't welcome. You know, I was from across the parking lot or however you want to put it. Did that cause problems trying to run the place or? Well, I think it's uh, anywhere between management and labor. There's always that uh, golf or whatever you want to call it. Uh, they don't understand each other, and they don't want to understand each other. You know, yeah. the uh, the laborers are a bunch of grubs. They're ignorant, uh, filthy, dirty people, you know. And then the laborers look at the management as just sitting around there behind all day. They don't, they're just costing us money. They don't do anything. And air conditioning, yeah. I think that's everywhere, where the labor doesn't understand the management, and management doesn't understand labor. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how you can ever fix that. There is two different classes. Right. Uh, but, yeah, they they made a lot of fun of the people that, of course, they dress nice and look nice and all that. And they were over on the hot building, you know, working in grease and oil and grime. And somebody will come pra- uh, prancing through with their city dress on, you know. They didn't <laughs> set too well with them. This is not that great a story, but I remember besides cleaning up the, the empty lot, on occasion someone would need a part delivered or something had to be delivered and they had these old trucks and you had warned me you said hey uh, take this truck take this part over wherever or go get this part and you know by the way the thing is really dirty and i thought okay i I didn't fathom how dirty it was (laughs) and i got in there and there was i'm not kidding there was literally grass growing in the floorboard there was so much dirt they you know they'd taken seed i thought wow that is a common problem with any place that has vehicles that are not assigned to one person. If you have community vehicles, they're generally always going to be full of trash because there's going to be one pig in a bunch and won't clean up their mess, and the rest of them are too stubborn to clean up the pig's mess, unfortunately. Uh, But that was probably, you're right, that was probably one of the worst. I don't know. It was just 
the whole place had just really run down, manager-wise, and filthy dirty. And well, eventually, Swanson Nunn went under. Do you know the, the details behind it? Well, even the whole time I worked there, and I think even when I was there in high school, they always seemed to have running, had a cash flow problem. I wasn't aware of it as much there out of high school because, you know, I wasn't that involved. But, but I was more aware of it when I came back as a supervisor because I was more involved in the bills and having to deal with uh, suppliers. And it, it, it was terrible. Most of our suppliers had put us on COD. They owed everybody money. Uh, it was hard to do your job right. And the story from the main office was, you know, they appeared to have lots of money and did you know, everything right. The money was, if everybody pay us the money that they owe us, we wouldn't have that problem. The, the main part of the business is contra- electrical contracting. And there is a problem. When you take on a large contract, the project may take over a year. You've got to work out some way to pay your workers and buy your materials for the duration of that contract. And you got there's some method of getting paid as you go along. But it is a problem if you're spending money on a project for a long length of time and you're not getting any money back from it. So they claim that was a problem. But what it did for us, we we're on COD. Nobody would give us credit. So when we had to, we couldn't buy anything ahead of time. We couldn't buy anything in bulk and save money. So anytime we needed a part for a job, customers needing something in a hurry, they're down, they're in emergency mode. We couldn't take care of them right because they had to wait three days on a part to come through the mail. Mm-hmm. And not only we had to pay the premium price and we had to pay shipping to get it there. So it was just compound, just kept making us more inefficient. In our industry, you're supposed to be able to fix things quick to keep customers out of a bind, you know. They're doing air conditioning work for people, furnace work, you know, and they want their jobs one they want them right now as soon as possible. And because you got credit problems, you can't get the parts in. And it was a problem. We had a, they had a meeting once, they want they wanted to have some input on how they can improve things around the place one time. It was over in the Ben office. And I has happened to mention very politely that, you know, if we didn't have to deal with COD, we could take care of our customers faster. That was the wrong thing to say. Really? Oh, man. I was shot down. That killed that meeting in a hurry. The owner really come down hard on me. It went in a different direction. Well, we pay you pretty good money here. I learned to keep my mouth shut from then on, but... They said, we're going to have a meeting. We want to talk about ways to try to improve business, try to make business pick up. And I solicited, I give them a valid reason. I said, well, you know, it's costing us two and three times as much because we have to go on COD. We can't fix the jobs as fast as we ought to. The customer's having to wait two or three days till a part comes in. You know, if we weren't on COD, they didn't like that. I guess he had probably heard it so much. I think they dealt with it on a daily basis. They were constantly, who who were they going to write a check to next? I mean, mm-hmm. it was that people would be calling and griping about their thing, and they'd make promises and not keep them. It was just a daily thing of trying to get cash moving in that place. And it may not have been his fault, but he, he took it out on me, you know. And it went, like I say, it went to a different direction. We were talking about the efficiency of the company, and he took it off the... Well, there's a lot of people work here get, and they're making crooked with wages. I, I think you guys have a little more appreciation for uh, how you're earning your living around here. You know, it wasn't about 
us not earn a living and we were unhappy about our wages, we was talking about ways. Wow. It was sad. That's really a lesson for anybody. That's the death of a co- company, death of a country. If you can't criticize, make things better. I even have some of the, the big, big-time managers that were right under his his wing, you know, his yes people, even later on apologized to me and said that wasn't right the way he treated wow. me. You know? Well, at least he... You know, but it made me feel any better. Well, <laughs> at least you know you weren't crazy. It's, yeah, it's a shame. I don't know the whole story, but it was years and years it was that way. I remember one time they were uh, somehow... The office decided to buy us a pickup truck for the motor shop. It was a nice new pickup truck, you know. And uh, for some reason, I had to go to a machine shop to pick up a part. Normally, it would be somebody else. I didn't really drive a truck to pick up things. But for some reason, it was convenient on my lunch hour or something. So I went to this machine shop to pick up a part that we'd sent over to have worked on. And when that owner of that machine saw, saw that new truck, he was furious. He didn't take it on me. He says, well, I'll just tell you now, this place owes me so much money, I don't know how they can go and buy you guys a new truck, you know. I heard later on he called the office and really raked him over the coals. It really set him off that no telling how much money they owed him. And then we'd come driving in, backing in to get a part that we weren't going to pay for it for another three or four months in a shiny new pickup. It just set him wrong, well, wrong, sure, you know? yeah. So now it's a parking lot. Home, yeah, lot. paid over paradise, put yeah, up a parking lot. I wouldn't call it paradise, but was this a retirement center now? I don't know what that is. It's probably a, a, a low income daycare, looks like. With oh, yeah. Over there. yeah. The song is ended, but the melody on. If you'd like to hear some more stories about Evansville, as told by my dad, Again, check out In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 181. Or if you'd like to hear about a very interesting Kentucky county called Hopkins, give episodes 113 and 114 your good ear. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. (laughs) 